Hello everyone and welcome to the very last episode of Writers Book Club for 2021. I honestly couldn't have asked for a better first year on this podcasting journey and that is due to two things. The incredible generosity of the writers who've given up their time to be on the show and you, the listeners, who've embraced the concept of taking a deep dive into writing craft and process behind some amazing novels. If you missed any of the interviews and want to catch up over the summer holidays, there are 10 altogether with some of Australia's most talented and extremely generous authors. And they are Natasha Lester, Kylie Ladd, Candice Fox, Jacqueline Moriarty, Nikki Gemmell, Meredith Jaffe, Kyle Perry, Lynette Noni, Jessica Detman, and last but by no means least, today's guest, Marcus Suzak. I've got a cracking interview for you today. It's a long one, I know, they're all long. This is the longest one yet. But if you're anything like me, you won't want it to end. Marcus and I talked all things writing and he used some brilliant examples from two of his novels, The Messenger and Bridge of Clay. But of course, we couldn't help ourselves. And this will make sense when you listen to the interview. But a writer can't not include one of the books that means everything to him. The Book Thief has so much to teach about voice and character and, well, it's a seamless inclusion when Marcus talks about writing. And then there's this. Out of the blue, Marcus pulled out the first page of the book he's writing now, and I could have cried. The writing, of course, is pure Marcus magic, but the content absolutely made my day, and I'm so thrilled to be able to share this exclusive peek into his work in progress with you. Huge, huge thank you to Marcus for sharing it. It's very special. Marcus also showed me a page from one of his notebooks for Bridge of Clay, which I'll put up on Instagram. So jump on there if you want to see what he was talking about when we get to that part of the interview. Right, before we begin, let me tell you a bit about Marcus Zusak. He is the international best-selling author of six novels, including The Book Thief and most recently Bridge of Clay. His work is translated into more than 40 languages and has spent more than a decade on the New York Times bestseller list establishing Marcus as one of the most successful authors to come out of Australia. All of Marcus's books, including earlier titles, The Underdog, Fighting Reuben Wolf, When Dogs Cry, also titled Getting the Girl, The Messenger, also titled I Am the Messenger, have been awarded numerous honours around the world, ranging from literary prizes to Reader's Choice Awards to prizes voted on by booksellers. In 2013, The Book Thief was made into a major motion picture and in 2018 was voted one of America's all-time favourite books, achieving 14th position on the PBS Great American Read. That still blows me away. Also in 2018, Bridge of Clay was selected as a best book of the year in publications ranging from Entertainment Weekly to The Wall Street Journal. Marcus grew up in Sydney, Australia and still lives there with his wife and two children. Now just a quick warning, there are spoilers in this interview, so if you haven't read The Messenger, The Book Thief or Bridge of Clay and you don't like spoilers, pop back for a listen after you've read them. There's also a very small F-bomb in one of the readings, so be careful if little people are around. Also. The technology gods were not kind to me on recording day, so you will hear some changes in the sound quality at my end. Apologies for that. I sound like I'm talking in a chimney with a 20 a day smoker's voice, but luckily Marcus does most of the talking and he still sounds fabulous. I hope you enjoy this interview with the wonderful Marcus Suzak. 
Marcus Zuzak, it is absolutely delightful to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, Michelle, a pleasure to talk to you. So I can't wait, can't wait to, to do it and uh, have a bit of fun. Me either. Now, a lot has been said about the book Thief. And so we decided, or you decided, maybe we f- should focus on The Messenger and Bridge of Clay. Why those two books? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not going to say, oh, it's because I'm sick to death about talking about The Book Thief. What I what I find is that I can't talk about The Messenger and Bridge of Clay without me talking about The Book Thief at some point, or even my earlier books, because they all sort of are the missing parts of each other. And uh, and so the people will say to me, oh, every one of your books is so different. But then I said, when you look a bit closer, like I'll look at something like The Messenger and say, if it wasn't for the messenger, I wouldn't have been able to write the book thief. And uh, and then after the book, I can't talk about Bridge of Clay without talking about the fact that, you know, it was the book after the book thief, and suddenly there was an audience, and suddenly there was pressure, and suddenly there was less time uh, to write because, you know, the book thief sort of, you know, was that magical book. It was like this magic carpet ride that took me around the world and. And, uh, you know, and I'd just become a parent. And so suddenly it's like, okay, how do I write this book? And then uh, the answer, of course, was with great difficulty, (laughs) you know, over 13 years. Uh, So uh, I'm so grateful to The Book Thief. But, you know, I have a a sort of, I think The Messenger is the book that I had the most fun writing in my, out of every single one of my books. And, uh, And then Bridge of Clay was sort of like that book that, you know, it was, it was the one that was, you know, it was my, I guess what you could call my gauntlet book. You know, <laughs> sort of like, it's sort of like, how hard do you want to make this for yourself? And uh, you know, how far do you want to go? And how much do you want to test yourself and test your audience and, and, and all, of, all of those things? And so I think both of those books have a, a bit of a special place in my heart and, uh, and, a, few, and a few dark places as well, because especially Bridge of Clay was was tough for quite a while. Yeah, yeah, and we'll probably get into that. I'm really glad you chose The Messenger because it allowed me to revisit it. You wrote it 2002, I think it came out, didn't mm. it? Some, mm. Yeah, so. Pretty old. Look, yeah, pretty old. And I was living in Sydney, my mum's in Melbourne, and we talk about books, and she said, oh, I just read this fantastic book, and it's got a dog in it. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that's when I read it for the first time. So I was really, really delighted to revisit it. And I'm glad you chose these two books because I adore Bridge of Clay. And I could see some of the reflections of the themes in there as well and the style of writing. I'd love to start with voice. You have so many really distinctive voices. We've got the five Dunbar boys and the parents and some ancillary characters in Bridge of Clay, and then we've got Ed and Audrey and Marv and Richie and, you know, even the secondary characters like Keith and Daryl, and they're all so, <laughs> so, <laughs> I love Keith and Daryl, um, yeah. so, so different. How do you find those voices and how do you make that work on the page? Mm. Oh, voice. Voice is, <laughs> if it's not number one, it's number two, uh, depending on the kind of writer you are. but. I can, I'll start by sort of saying the first time I really, I think I struggled with voice very early on before I was published, where you're trying to find your own voice as a writer and not just 
imitate your heroes. And, uh, but in, with voice, like probably the first thing beyond that that I can say is when you've got a voice, you feel like you can do anything, go anywhere, make anything. And so the, the, the prime example of that was in The Book Thief was that when I got the, the voice, I told you I'd end up talking about The Book Thief at some point. It was only a matter of time. <laughs> but yeah, and it was just um, when I brought death in to narrate the book it was it made the voice even though i still struggled at a certain point with that because i wrote 180 to 200 pages very quickly and that was because i felt like i had this voice but it just needed a bit of tweaking but i i felt like i could kind of do anything or go anywhere and it would remain interesting and because that voice was quite was was unique and it was upbeat whilst being dark it sort of had it just had the right balance and I know that in Bridge of Clay with Matthew, as the, like I had a lot of problems with voice with Bridge of Clay. Probably it took me years, it took me five, six, seven years to, to find Matthew's voice as the narrator. And even you can look at the first line of the book. The first line originally was, and Matthew wasn't even the narrator. For the first three years, there was a girl called Maggie who was the narrator, who is now the central character of the book I'm writing now. And this is, now I'm just going off into all these tangents where so what I can say to people is all of your failed efforts and your failed attempts and work done that you go, oh, rubbish, characters that don't work, narrators that don't work, plots that don't work, they might work somewhere. You know, so no work is ever actually wasted. And I'm often telling myself, you can worry today or you can work. And I feel so much better after a day of work than a day of worry. And uh, so the original first line of Bridge of Clay was the murderer arrived at six o'clock, full stop. Uh, the one we ended up with is in the beginning, there was one murderer, one mule and one boy. But this isn't the beginning, it's before it, it's me. And I'm Matthew and here I am in the kitchen, in the night, that old river mouth of light, punching and punching away. Something like that. I used to be able to recount that. <laughs> I could recite the first 50 pages of that book, you know, and I would do so. And people would think I'm mad as I was walking my dogs, you know, through the, you know, the streets and, uh, and parks and so on. But it was really important to me to sort of, the voice does so many things at once. It signifies, you know, you want, the, you want people to hear that character in their head, like they're just talking to you, how you want them to talk to the reader. But it's also signifying in this case, the ambitions of the book. And, uh, and so that's Matthew or me saying to the reader, this book has a fair bit in it. You know, we're not even, we start, we're talking about the beginning, but we're going to before the beginning. And we're throwing these three things at you, a, a murderer, a mule, a boy. And, and so this is not gonna be like most of the things you're going to read. And, uh, and so, yeah, voice is, really difficult and then you're talking about sorry i will shut up in a second no please uh, is, don't <laughs> is um then those voices between characters uh you know where you talk about the five dunbar boys where you talk about um ed and audrey and marv and how they're all different i, I like i've found that often we're looking for certain things like uh the best example i can probably give you is like a character I struggled with in Bridge of Clay and she was in the book and then she was out of the book. I mean, there are so many different versions of Bridge of Clay. It's ridiculous. 
Um, but even in the easy books, in the book thief, I, I took death out. Of, there's a version of the book thief where death is not the narrator. Um, and but there's a character called Carrie in Bridge of Clay, and she she was a character I really struggled with because she was like the Rudy Steiner. Um, it, who's sort of like this loved, my most loved character in the book thief. And I wanted people to love Carrie the way she loved Rudy and the, the way people loved Rudy. And um, there were a lot of problems with that. And uh, the first being that's a totally different book. Matthew's voice is not that come along voice that the book thief has. And I was trying to make people fall in love with Carrie by describing her perfectly and this and that and her hair and her freckles and her uh, every and then i was like you know uh, you know it just took years and years and years for me to finally <laughs> realize that part of the voice of every character it's not what they say it's not what they look like it's a little bit what they say but you find the voice of your characters in what they do and you, you the voice of your characters comes when they do something and so suddenly I went, oh, just stop describing her, make her do something. And, uh, and so I just had this moment in the book where she sees Clay uh, after a certain stint where he's been away and she just comes in and she, she's barefoot and she comes and she, she's at the track and she just comes and she hugs him and she actually jumps up and she, you know, and, and holds him and I went, just brought her to life. That's it. And so, and so I think that's how you bring the voice of your characters to life is by not only what they say, but making them do something. Um, the classic example of that in, in the book thief as an example is um, when Rudy decides he wants to be Jesse Owens and he runs the hundred meters pretending. And that was when I fell in love with him as a character. So, um, you know, and in the messenger, it's even just Ed making that decision to intervene in the bank robbery and uh, that's where you that that's where he finds his voice as a character i think yeah he's immediately lovable ed i reckon i know he thinks he's a bit of a loser at the start but just the way he interacts with his mates and the things that he does and the way he rises um yeah oh he's a complete idiot yeah but you love him <laughs> but in a good way in he's a, a warm way. idiot <laughs> and do you think also it's the way other characters interact with that character that allows their personality to shine through as well? So in that example where Clay is looking at Carrie and observing her rather than you describing her or, the, or Carrie mm. as narrator describing herself, that, does that help as well, having that kind of distance from a character? I think one of the it's interesting hearing you talk about that and one of the one of the best things or simplest things you can make a character work sometimes or two characters work off each other is get them to argue about something and uh, and so I mean I didn't think of that till just now really although <laughs> so, it's always there in the back of my head is you you almost you know everything you need to know about Ed, Marv, Audrey, and Richie from that first um, scene or chapter in The Messenger where they're all on the floor during the bank robbery and they're, uh, they're talking to each other and they're basically arguing and, and Ed's saying to Audrey, oh, get your foot off me, my legs are going numb and, and Richie's over under the Lego table and Marv's talking about his car and how he doesn't want to pay a, a fine because it's out in a 15 minute parking zone and Ed's saying, you 
car's a piece of shit, you know, just <laughs> it, the fine's worth more than the car. And, and suddenly you just go, oh, these people. So what you've just, what that has done without me really understanding why, I think this is important to sort of tell people as well as most of the time, I don't really know what I'm doing when I'm writing. I, you know, I, I know what I w- kind of want, but half the time I'm, I'm I, like, I'm, I would never say anything as whimsical as, oh, I let the characters lead me. This is not true. <laughs> My characters become who they are because I do the work. <laughs> and, um, but a lot of the time you do the work and then something springs out and you go, that's it. I wouldn't have got that if I wasn't doing the work. And so that's why even the voice of the doorman you know, who is my favourite character in The Messenger, so the dog. That's the dog, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, just, you know, you, I was just sitting there, um, you know, working on these two characters and then I just, I loved the, having this interplay of Clay knowing what the doorman's thinking. And um, and so there's the bit where he's, the, he's Clay's having, uh, not Clay, I might have said Clay. Clay, um, where uh, Ed, Ed. Where Ed says... You know, he's drinking coffee and the doorman's going, well, don't I get some? You know, and so he gives him some and then he still won't touch it. He's like, oh, all right, put some sugar in it. And, uh, and so there was just always just that, how the characters talk to each other sort of gives each of them their own voice. Yeah. Uh, and, and also their own role. And so began the doorman's coffee habit. <laughs> yeah. I, it wasn't until the funny, you know, the beauty of that is it wasn't, a couple of years ago that I, you know, I read somewhere in some article that coffee is toxic to dogs. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, 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 a bit of a bummer for the doorman. But luckily he was already 14 years old. <laughs> he was so, uh, going to go out on a caffeine high. Well, I wasn't sure. I can't be sure anymore if um, the doorman was 17 years old or 14 years old. My hunch is 17. But so yeah. it's, I sort of tell people that eventually you do forget. Whereas when you first put a book out, you're so worried about every little detail that may or may not be wrong. And so I, I really like that idea. So I look back on my very first books with, I wouldn't call it nostalgia, but I just sort of look back and like appreciate what I was like back then. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that things are a lot rougher on, at the edges, but I was much freer, I think, as a writer. Yeah. And, um, and so, and I feel that way about The Messenger now too. Did you ever find in the writing of both of these stories that occasionally you'd sit down to write and you'd think, oh, God, um, Rory's starting to sound like Clay or Matthew or Ed's starting to sound a bit like Marv. And then how would you resolve that? Or once you had the voices, did that not happen? I think I'd probably struggle less with characters sounding like each other than I do with just the voice that is carrying the whole thing. Right. Um, because I feel like I've thought about the interplay of the... Ca- or, or maybe that does come slightly more naturally to me, the difference between characters. It's easier for me to do those sort of relationships of, say, the five brothers or the, the idiocy yet love between Ed and his friends because to me that was sort of like... You know that that's your high school years and hearing kids talk to each other or it's playing in a football team you know for in my case you know for 15 years with the same people and so that familiarity for me the voices of say 
Penny Dunbar and Michael Dunbar. When the, the, the problem I had when I got those two characters together was that they were both a bit, um, they were both very quiet people. And so to me, it was how do I get bring these quiet people to life with each other? And so what I would have is I'd have all this stuff going on between the brothers and I'd get these two characters together that whose singular stories were so, to me, interesting. Yes. As soon as I brought them together, it was like all the air got sucked out. I went, how do I, what's wrong here? What's And, and that was where... And I know you mentioned, you know, just in our correspondence beforehand, the idea of if something's alive, keep it. If it's dead, cut it or bring it to life in a hurry. And I think that was specifically between those two characters in Bridge of Clay, where I loved both of them. But I had this problem where when they came together, it was like they didn't. Um, it's easy when you've got characters rubbing against each other and there's friction. Whereas these were two characters who were very much coming together and they were like in this similar sort of flow. And so, sort of like, how do you make that interesting? And so in that case, I, I, I made it more of a tension of uh, how was one going to be brave enough to not just walk past the house, but to go to that front door and go inside and then have the, the courage at one point just to reach out and say, no, I'm not letting you go at this moment. And uh, and so it was, it, it's bringing those two together. Again, it's that, that idea of make them do something. Yeah, yeah. The answer is in some kind of, I don't like to use the word, but it, it but there's a, there is an answer in the action. And, uh, you know, and that action can be a fingertip. You know, it doesn't have to be some, you know, I, the reason I don't like to use the word action is because, you know, people think of an explosion of some kind, you know, or some kind action in that sense of movie, you know, big budget movie action, but make them make something happen. And, uh, and so I think that was, that was a really important thing between those two characters. But as for characters and their own singular voices, I think I've thought about them a lot. They're with me a lot. And, uh, and so I feel like I've built um, characters to a point before I've even started writing where they are different from each other enough for me to start writing. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of one of the actions that Michael Dunbar does when he asks Penny to marry him by writing mm -hmm. the... It's a, I don't know if that's a spoiler, but it's a, it's a very oh. special... It's a very special way and entirely in keeping with his personality, I think lovely yeah well so i don't think it's a spoiler at all and i'm sort of i like to use the idea that there was a great line in one of the books that made me want to be a writer which was you know a, a book by se hinton called taming the star runner and it's not her best book or it's one of, and it's, and it's about a boy who becomes a writer so you can see why it sort of <laughs> appealed to me and uh, but there's a part where the boy's talking to this editor who's taken his book on and she says to him something like, yeah, but you, you could leave that chapter as a sort of cliffhanger so that people want to read on because they want to know what happens. And he says, yeah, but that shouldn't be the only reason they want to read on. Mm -hmm. And I really like that idea. And 
again, hate to do it, but, you know, even death says in the book thief, you know, oh, mystery bores me, it chores me. So I'm just going to tell you what happens. And he's a classic for giving spoilers 250 pages before something happens, you know, even <laughs> yeah. someone's going to die. And, um, and so it's not a spoiler for me. And, pe- you know, the book's been out for two years, so people can I get know. stuff. True, yeah. yeah. I'll put a spoiler alert and say, look, if there might be spoilers in here, if you don't like spoilers, just go read the book first no. and then come back and have a listen. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I think it has to be something that you couldn't see coming. So he does propose, he, he knows that she loves, you know, the piano is part of her soul. And so he writes the ma- marriage proposal on the piece. And uh, it was one of the first things I envisioned when I was writing the book. So when I, you're thinking about a book and you're thinking about these moments, and all your book is at the simplest level is getting to your moments and, ma- and doing enough before the moment happens to make the moment count. And then you recover from that moment and then you're getting to your next big moment. And, and that was always one of the, the really uh, beautiful moments in Bridge of Play that I was always looking forward to writing. And, um, and to me, it, was a, it, it sort of summed up their partnership yeah he understood that there are some things that you write in a book that take forever and you work on and you it goes through it has all these problems and you go through all all of these different versions of it and then you have some things that you write once and that was one of the things that i wrote once in bridge of clay and uh, and it stayed how it was and it just you know i just kept moving around in the novel in all the different versions of it some things you keep because they're actually um, you know, the vital, I don't want to say the word essence for some reason, but they're like one of the vital organs of the book in some way. Yeah, the beating heart. Yeah, and if it's not the heart, it's at least a kidney or something. <laughs> you know, that moment. That's not very romantic, is it? One of the kidneys of the story. It's a very romantic novel, Marcus. It really is. It's just such, it's a, it's a story of love. So beautiful. I'm, I'm gushing. I loved it. Now, we talked about spoilers, so that I'm going to jump around here a bit, but I wanted to talk to you about foreshadowing because I particularly noticed this more in my second reading of Bridge of Clay. We know Penny is going to die very early on at some point. We know that something is going to happen to Carrie, but these things don't actually happen until much, much later in the book. And, you know, if you're going to um, give a spoiler, it would be about why and how these things happen and I guess we talked about it before with uh, the book thief as well like we know certain things are going to happen what is it about foreshadowing that appeals to you and what are you trying to do within the structure of the novel there yeah it it's this is one of those ones where as you were asking the question about six different answers come up I think I could go here I could go here and, and if nothing else, that reminds me, because so often, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm lost and I'm unhappy and I'm, I just can't get a book to work. But then at a moment like that, where you're asking a question and I see these answers, it, it, gives, it does sort of uh, confirm that I have some idea what I'm doing and that, that I'm thinking about all of these things a lot and, that, and a lot of thought goes into these things. Uh, one of the answers was uh, that I remember one review of Bridge of Clay, and I, I always talk about this stuff because I think it actually shows confidence, but one reviewer said, oh, Bridge of Clay, you, you know all this stuff's coming. He said, it could have been called Bridge of Delay. 
because there's so much. It was a good review, but you got to. I think you got to talk about the bad with the good, you know, because I think you write your next book to atone for the sins of the last one, and that's not to say that there's something wrong with a book just because a reviewer didn't like a certain aspect of it. Um, but for me, it's a combination of things, and. The foreshadowing, I kind of like it because this was one of the other answers was Bridge of Clay is when you said it's a romantic book, it also has kind of a romantic life in in the terms of like where it sits in my, you know, so-called body of work because it's the book that the people who love it, love it kind of guarding, you know, they almost guard it in a way. And it's not a book. So one of my favourite things to say about it is that it's not a book for weaklings. Uh, it's not a book for people who just want to go to the airport and read a novel to forget their 12-hour plane ride to Los Angeles or wherever they're going. It's a book that you have to give yourself to a little bit and you have to trust me and you have to trust Matthew and you have to trust this family and these characters that they're going to take you somewhere and then by the end of it, if we've all done everything right, you're going to feel like you are part of that family. You are going to be a Dunbar boy or you're going to be Penelope Dunbar or Michael Dunbar. That's what it is asking of you. And so you've got to be able to put that family goes through a lot and you're asked to go through it with that. And, uh, and so in that case, it just, there was, you know, there was always that foreshadowing of, well, the question is always, why is clay like clay is? Why is it that there is a whole, in a book of eight parts, for the first whole part, clay doesn't say a single, single thing until he sees their dad, who has just come home after being in the wilderness for however many years, and his first two words in the book are, hi, dad. You know, when the rest of his brothers kind of just want to turf him out of the house. And... Uh, and so the question is always, what is Clay's wound? And it's what you learn from every, whether it's a, a Hollywood writer or a, a, you know, a novel, a novelist, is that every character has to have a wound. And what is it that they are trying to get over? And Clay's wound is quite a mighty, uh, you know, pretty tough wound. And so we know that Penelope's died, but the question is, how did she die? And what part did Clay have in that, if any part? at all and uh and so there was always that that foreshadowing and with carrie as well we're always going to know that carrie was also going to be a big she was to be clay's final test originally when i wrote bridge of clay it was going to be put together like a jigsaw puzzle and so and it's really interesting when people talk about it like oh there's, there are all these different pieces of the of a puzzle and i think oh so it sort of stayed there uh, the way that it was written. Um, in The Messenger, there's a lot less sort of foreshadowing in that it's sort of written in this present tense where it just seems to sort of go through and, and, and you don't really see the ending coming. You know, so many things with that book that, that the riskiness of the end, the ending where I didn't quite know what I was doing, but that's really what led to writing The Book Thief and then Bridge of Clay. It's sort of like I remember speaking with another writer once uh, on a sort of, you know, it was a, an interview type situation where there was someone interviewing the two of us and the other author said, you know, I'm a professional writer. You know, I, I only start writing a book when I know I can finish it. 
and I missed my chance during the thing, but it disturbed me a little bit. And then I, I thought about it afterwards and I thought, well, oh, if that means if you're a professional writer and you start a book only when you know you can finish it, I'm pretty, I, I think I'm happy to be an amateur because I only want to write books that I might not be able to finish. <laughs> uh, because, you know, to me, that's more of a test. And uh, what that has to do with foreshadowing, I don't know. <laughs> Apart from the possible foreshadowing of failure. But I think, um, you know, it, but I think it's good for readers to understand. What, I think what you're doing with foreshadowing is you're telling your readers uh, two things. One is that, yes, something important is going to happen and it will be revealed to you at the right time. If I'm doing my job right, and, uh, and I think... The other things it's saying is that, you know, that, that there is, there's more depth here and there's more to be discovered and that there's more to all of this than you think and mm. more will be revealed to you and it will change you in mm. your reading of the novel. Mm, it will. And if you did take that flight to LA and take Bridge of Clay along with you, you'd be not only a Dunbar, but you'd be a blithering wreck and you'd be, cha <laughs> and you'd be changed by it. I, I really believe that even reading it the second time round was an even richer experience for me. I cried more the second time around than I did the first, maybe because I knew what was coming. Penny Dunbar is just one of the all-time great fictional mothers. So thank oh, you for writing her. It's a book about five brothers, but she's the heart of that book. Yeah, and maybe because I'm a mum, I identified with her as well. Yeah, I, you know, if someone says to me, who are your favourite characters that you've written, you know, Penny is, is, is right there. And, you know, the chapter where we first meet her and she just comes out of nowhere in that, you know, you've got all these raucous events happening in the first part of the book and we know there's been, you know, there's that line, their mother was dead, their father had fled. And, um, and it's always just playing you know, playing with, that, that's such a simple piece of language. Mm. But I just, that's one of those ones where I go, yeah, I like that, leave it, yeah. move yeah. on. And, uh, but Penny then, there's that chapter called The Mistake Maker. And, and to me, it was always this, it was always, again, one of those moments where she's growing up. We don't, we aren't told, we don't find out. It's such a big thing for me. And talk about spoilers. At the very end of the book, it mentions the city of Warsaw which is where Penny comes from. To me, it was a very emotional thing to actually say the city's name on page 500 and, you know, whatever it was. Um, and but when she's practising the piano as a kid and her father, who's called, nicknamed the Statue of Stalin, is just <laughs> hitting her hands every, with a spruce branch every time she makes a mistake and then finally he stops her and he holds her hands you know which are red and and he holds them and he says that's enough mistake maker but you know that that's enough for today and uh, and to me it's you're just always looking so the moments don't have to be big things that sometimes they're just these little sparks and little um just pieces of life where you go i really like that that brought some emotion that you know and i've, I've just got you know, the beginnings of a tear in my eye when I write those lines. Mm. And, and that's when I, I kind of know it's working because I'm there. And that's all I'm trying to do with everything, whether it's the voice, whether it's the images, whether it's 
characters interacting. What I want to feel, what I want to build is that feeling of being there. And that's when I know it's actually working, when I'm there. And I really like, love the way you talk about it as a, as a romantic book because it's a tough book. I, I mean romantic in that bigger sense of the mm. word, you know, mm. love yeah. really, but that grand romantic mm. overtone, it, it has that as well as being tough and gritty and all the other things that it is. Yeah, we're not talking about a woman and man on the cover putting a shirt ripped off. It's, uh, it's, that, it's, it's that deeper sense of... Um, I guess I'll even call it romanticness. Like, it's so funny because that just hit me now because um, I don't know if I'm going to use it, but there's a line in what I'm trying to write now where uh, the, the narrator says, oh, yeah, the sheer romanticness. And she says, yeah, I know, I know, it's wrong. Romant- it should be romantic. But such a more romantic word than romance. It and, does. It uh, has a different meaning, doesn't it? Yeah, it's... Uh, and so always playing. I always remember going up Pigeon House Mountain with my dad once and we're all, my brother and sisters and I were all complaining and he says, you just got to get through this first bit and then it's great. So I always think of writing as, it's like climbing a mountain, but there's, there's the promise of a sand pit at the top where yeah. you get to play, but you've got to climb the mountain first. You've got to do the hard work first. And then suddenly you're writing uh, a kind of a, a line that whether it's good or bad, but you just go, oh, that's where I was playing. I was just playing. I mean, even here, I just brought the first few pages of, um, you know, what I'm working on now, but the girl, the main character refers to a horse's leg as branch full, uh, you know, B-R-A-N-C-H-F-U-L. And she, the narrator uses the word worldful as well you know a world full of suburbs and I, at first I've got world and full as two separate words and I think I'll just try out yeah you know f-u-l on the end and make it one word and it's one of the things I love is it's really nice when someone says oh that was wrong that was a mistake and uh, you sort of go yeah I know yeah <laughs> and I love <It's>... it <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's so much of a sense of play in this and that probably is a good way of bringing us to this idea of rhythm and pace and word choice i've heard you say and you mentioned it before if it's alive keep it if it's dead cut it can you give us an example of a sentence or a section of one of these novels or something you're working on now where it was dead and then it came to life yeah there's a it's not maybe the perfect example but Often it's the difference of one word that can bring something to life. And, uh, and it wasn't in the case where this was a dead sentence, but actually this whole chapter is the example. Um, and it's the chapter at the beginning of part five. And it's such an important chapter because it's where we first see uh, the Dunbar family together as Penelope, Michael, and these five Dunbar boys. And I thought, okay, how do we bring this family to life? And again, it was the act of doing things and making things happen. And so I just had this family together and they're doing all of, there's all this stuff going on. And then finally, I just just thought of a moment where they're all sitting in the kitchen eating. And I just had the thought where one of the characters spills his, they're having soup and he's, 
Rory spills all his soup down his front. And oh, yes. Can you imagine living with five boys? Oh, my and, God. You know, all of a certain age. And, um, and so they make him eat the rest of his dinner without his T-shirt. And then when the other boys laugh at him, you know, Penny and Michael, they make them take their shirts off too. And so, and it becomes this bit of a joke between them all. And then both Michael and Penny, they decide they're going to eat their without her, their shirt as well. And it's that sort of thing where, and that's a moment where you've got Penelope, who's this very correct and law-abiding citizen, and she'll do something like that. And there was a description of her underwear you know, where I was just thinking of the word, like what, what's the word, you know? And it was like, was it broken? Is it, you know, distressed? Is it what, you know, what is it? And then I just woke up one morning and I just, the word entered my head and I went scruffy. <laughs> and so, um, you know, as soon as I used the word scruffy for that, you know, what it reminded me of, and this is, you know, I've heard the idea that no, what, what a novel is, is, is giving a, a person or a reader a world that they they already know, but in a way that they have never seen it before, or they've never recognised it before, and um, and to me that was one of those moments when I wrote it, and then when I I read through it again, I went, ah, oh, that's right, because what it did is it took me reeling back to my own backyard as a kid and seeing our clothes hanging up on the clothesline and seeing the underwear of you know my mum hanging, and that's what it looked like. It was mm -hmm. scruffy. It was just that word um, showed me a recognition of the world I came from, but in this world, which is a world that I was seeing for the first time as a reader, you know, even though it was a book that I'd worked on. That's what we're trying to do all the time. I did love that section because it brings in your playfulness as well. So she sits there and they're saying, should she take her shirt off? And you say her brow was old and scruffy looking. It was faded, strapped to each breast. She ate and smiled regardless. She said, now don't go burning your chest. We knew what to get her for Christmas. And I love that last line. It's awesome. It's funny what that made me think of as a short story, whether I ever write it or not, which, and the short story is called Bra Shopping with the Dunbar Boys. <laughs> I, I sort of imagine them, you know, doing that. And uh, maybe if I ever write a, a book of short stories called B-sides and things that, you know, never made it into the book. Um, I would write that, but it was just that thing of that here was this woman who you thought was quiet and easy to underestimate her. Mm -hmm. um, and then she would come out and surprise you like that. And, and that's how I always sort of thought of myself um, in writing terms as well is that, you know, I'm not a, a big self promoter and I don't talk up my books too much. It's like, let the work speak for itself don't necessarily let them see you coming. And I, like, I even remember the first time I was in, in America and I met this you know, big, big time sort of agent who was sort of like the head of the company that I was being represented by. And he said, God, the first time I saw you, I thought there was almost, you know, I, I thought you were the most backward person I'd ever met. And I thought, backward, what does that, what does that mean? <laughs> and, uh, but then I realized he just, you know, just meant sort of shy and not talking about myself much and, you know, not coming forward. And uh, but then I did sort of think to myself later that sometimes it's good to be a deer in the headlights and to know your place, yeah. uh, especially if you're not completely a deer, you know, um, that, that you've got this drive within you 
and uh, and I think Penny Dunbar is sort of the embodiment of that. That she's she is. You've got five brothers, and they're all tough in their own ways, um, but she's the toughest character by far in the book. And in a lot of ways, that the mothers in the books have always been the heroic ones. You know, in my first three books um, about the Wolf Brothers, they call their mum Mrs. Wolf, um, and it's a sort of respect yeah. you know it's just a thing that and again it was just something that i put in once and i went i like that keep it and uh, all that's all the best stuff all the best stuff is always oh i don't know where that came from keep it will you move on from a sentence if it's dead in the drafting process and think i can fix that later or is this just all in the writing of the draft yeah i think it comes at different stages um sometimes it just comes when you're struggling a bit and you don't, you say, oh, this opening to this chapter doesn't work. Okay, start again. Mm. And then you start with something new and you go, oh, that's, that, that has come to life a bit. And then sometimes it is, it's a bit like the word scruffy in that situation where you've worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. And then like a bolt from the blue, it's there. And, uh, and some, of the, some sentences you're never gonna get completely right. Mm. But, you know, that's a little bit like, you know, and I'm sorry in a way to use a, you know, a sporting analogy, but it's sort of like, you know, you watch all these grand finals, let's say year after year after year after year, and you go, yeah, that wasn't a very good one. That wasn't a very good one. And but it's the not very good ones that make the great ones great. Yeah. Uh, you can't, they can't be great all the time. And so some, you know, even yesterday I was, I was working on a sentence that, oh, it was a description of the ground. Um, and it just, you know, and I tried the pitiless ground, the heartless ground, the this ground, the that ground. And finally, I just went, you know what? Just call it the cool, hard ground. And there's nothing beautiful or special about that, but it's okay because there is enough interesting stuff around it. Because if there's too much interesting, uh, you know, too much playfulness going on too, then suddenly people are in the circus. Now, we can't talk about the rhythm of your language without talking about punctuation markers this mm -hmm. is something that i uh, <laughs> feel you are known for i'm going to ask you to read the first line of the messenger because i reckon there's about half a dozen ways you could read that and tell us tell us about punctuation let's talk yeah. about it well i don't even have to pick up the book at least it's pretty short this is really interesting because it depending which one i pick up if I pick up, say, probably every other copy in the rest of the world, there is not a comma in that first sentence. What? Uh, yeah, so but I should have made it difficult for everyone to just put a full stop. Um, so if I was to read the first sentence, and I think you can really hear it in the way it would be said here in our country, is the gunman is useless. That's exactly how I heard it. Yeah, and, and then it's, you know, I know it, he knows it, the whole bank knows it, even my... And, me, and that was one of those ones where the voice is immediately there. It's immediately there. And so sometimes I wish I could travel back 18 years to my former self and just go, I was just writing the way I speak. And, and I think you do start to evolve as, as a writer and in ways that you can and can't control, um, depending on, you know what you're trying to do. But even now, I'm very 
interested in punctuation probably more than a normal person should be <laughs> or maybe any writer should be as well i've always had really great editors but even my very first editor when she 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 sent me a, a letter about the messenger and she said but you know i've got to say i would have argued tooth and nail with nail with you about taking the comma out of the first sentence of the messenger but i think that comma gives it the voice i do too so um and the bridge of clay in particular the the punctuation really gives it the rhythm punctuation is such an ugly word great if we could come up with something better yeah something more romanticness <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes it, essentially what i've realized pretty much in all of my books even going way back to the first ones which are pretty freewheeling there is still a reason for everything there is a reason for every word every comma even even let's say the more dull words and um in bridge of clay of course you know a bigger much more complicated book uh, the reason i wrote in a specific rhythm throughout most of that book was to sort of keep it in line with the idea that the iliad and the odyssey runs through bridge of clay and so it was just not necessarily a nod but nod to those books but it was in keeping with the idea of the, the heroism of those books and this was a, a heroic story about these characters. And that's why all of the characters have these nicknames, you know, like Penny is the mistake maker, uh, you know, and Rory is the human ball and chain. And, uh, <laughs> and, and all of the, they all had these larger than life nicknames, you know, Michael Dunbar is, is nicknamed the murderer and, and so on all throughout the book. And because I wanted it to be, even though it's a very suburban story and it's about the little lives of people, you know, living in this suburban house, 18 Archer Street, but, but they were big stories because the things that happen to us are big. You know, when when our parents get sick, it's it's big, it, it's big for us. When we, we fall in love, it's, it's, it's a big story for us. And so I wanted there to be that element of heroism going through. And this comes back to the, you know, unromanticness of the idea of punctuation because that's, how I wrote the book in that in that kind of rhythm so that it was sort of you know it's like this river that's running underneath that house um, and that was the language that I wanted to, to write it in and the reason I can sleep at night you know with this job is that pretty much every word is accounted for in these books even you know even in the messenger and my earliest books that are more freewheeling there's there, there is always a decision of, mm. as to why I use that word or that word even if it is, you know, that example I used of, you know, arriving at finally the cool hard ground, you know, <laughs> that, that more level sentence is there, you know, to elevate the more interesting lines. So you're always trying to work on this, this balance so that, you know, I liken it sometimes to building a brick wall. You want, you want enough bricks so that the wall is real and you don't want bricks to be missing, but you don't want too many on top either. So speaking of bricks and bricklaying and making walls, let's talk about structure. How did you eventually arrive at the structure, especially of Bridget Clay? I know you said the messenger was a bit more of a free-flowing mm -hmm. writing experience, but Bridget Clay took a while to get there. So let's mm. talk about that. Yeah. Bridget Clay, I think it can come down to a little bit of what I said earlier about it's not, not a book for weaklings in that a lot of people, I think, 
And I think a lot of people who just want, you know, pretty easy reading experiences of sort of go, oh, it's all just too hard. Like, oh, I didn't get, whereas it's actually pretty simple. It basically runs on a um, present past structure where you have chapter in the present, chapter in the past. And basically what happens is that present and past are coming closer and closer together as the novel sort of wears on. So it, and then you get to the very end where the present and the past sort of meet in a way. And we find out, um, you know, what actually happened to propel all of this into action in the first place. And, um, it took a while to get to that moment where I sort of went, okay, it's a present past, present past, uh, novel. And, um, I've sort of vowed never to do that again. Oh, really? Because it worked so well, I thought. I think it, it, it does. It works for that book because that's what the book needed. I wouldn't have been able to write the book and uh, without doing that. And I think sometimes when people say to me, why did you do this? Or why did you do that? Or how did, oh, you must have loved doing that. And I say, no, I didn't really love doing that. It was because it was the only way I could get the book to work. You know, it's the idea that, necessity is the mother of invention and um and so it was the only way i could get the book to work was to do it back and forth like that because what i realized the book needed was instead of going all the way back to the past and saying we're not going to start with clay clay would have entered the novel on page 200 and so i wanted clay to be present generally all the time and so you could see um you know what was happening in the present and how the past was going to affect this and um and so that was why i did it i just had to do it It the only way the book could be done you know pretty similar to how in the book thief it just needed death to to narrate the book i couldn't i couldn't go through with the book without it and so i think what you that's how you end up with a structure the way it is you try all these other ways of doing it but you you go no this is it now and then you know you try to go back and do it another way because it gets too hard. I'm always doing that, but then I realize, okay, this is the only way to do it. And that was the way Bridge of Clay was going to work. And was that in the drafting process or was it after, you know, did you write out of sequence and then have to kind of slot all of that together like a jigsaw puzzle, past, present, etc.? I almost never write out of sequence. Okay. I, I will write bits and pieces of a chapter or if I'm really struggling with a part or, you know, a certain chapter of that, all right, now you got to leave it and you have to write something new that I have to force myself. I want to be writing, say, part two of a novel, having gone through part one so that I feel like I'm there and I've been through what I've needed to go through to, to arrive at that part. Uh, but that doesn't mean I'm right. But I mean, I should have moved on so many times. And so sometimes I'd be struggling with part one again. And I'd already written parts of all of part two and all of part three and part four. And I'd, I'd read part three. I'd say, just force yourself to read part three now. I go, geez, that writing's actually alive. That's actually, you know, you should have done that six months ago. <laughs> so, so, um. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. Yes, it definitely is. So, um, so, but the I'm pretty much. I'm working on a structure now. You'll you'll see it because we're talking to each other on Zoom. But I'm, this is basically what I'm always doing: is writing chapter headings. 
Now you see that that's that page, but if I turn just back that page, it's on that page too. And if I turn the page again, oh, look, it's on that page as well. And here we go again. Oh, it's on these two pages. All the way through, I'm, I'm structuring from beginning to end as I'm writing. So it, it is all through the draft. I don't, I don't come up with a structure and then go, now I write. I, I, I come up with a structure and then I keep working on it. And often making that list of chapter headings is my way of finding my way back into the book where yeah, right. I, I sort of like I'll, I'll sit down and I'll just go, I haven't, you know, I, I haven't really worked on it properly for a couple of weeks or even a couple of days. And by writing those chapter headings down, I'm seeing the world of the book yeah. in my head. And, and so I'm ready to sort of start writing again after I've done that. Yeah, yeah. I've heard you talk in the past about the importance of detail and George Saunders talks about specificity, but before I heard him talk about it, I heard you talk about it. So you were first. <laughs> I was the warm up. For you were the warm up. <laughs> I remember you giving me such an amazing example of how specificity and, and a level of detail can really bring the work alive. And I was wondering if you could give an example of that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The way I talk about it is generally there's a very simple reason for doing it and including deep, you know, the details being important. And then there's a more, I guess, I don't want to say intelligent, but a deeper reason. And but the, the, the simplest reason is you just want people to believe you. And that translates to them being there. Because if they don't believe you, they're not there. And you want them to cease seeing what, uh, you know, black words on white page. You want them to be, sit you want them to be inside that world. And uh, I mean, I mean, I could pretty much find it on any page. I could just, I could go to the beginning of like first page of, you know, what I'm working on now or may, may or may not ever see the light of day that this book starts with. It's not every night you look out your front window and see a girl on your lawn with a racehorse. And it's definitely not every dawn four years later when the same said girl falls down on the road and gets carried back home in the suburbs. But it was that way for Maggie, a girl named Maggie Dearborn. As for me, I'm Sonny Dunbar, nice to meet you. And I'm here, a girl on the roof. The tiles are like old men up here. You know the men I mean. You've seen them at the beach, clomping out of the water like movable leather feasts, shouting, skin cancer? Fuck skin cancer. Yes, it's that kind of roof we've got here, crumbling but tough and cheerful. It's hot and my shorts are blazing. They itch me in the quadriceps. I prefer that word to thighs. God, these ghastly effing tiles. It's a love-hate relationship up here sometimes, but mostly love, I have to admit, with the city laid out around me. The westerlies under my shirt. It's a breeze as light as a diet. My voice calls out, but quiet. The only one hearing is you. Now, if like... Sorry, that kind of, I just. Marcus, that's, I'm there. I'm on the, I'm on the roof. <laughs> Freeze of the as a diet. You're too nice for me. It, oh. Yeah, well, it's funny because that chapter is a really, I mean, that paragraph is um, a good example of like the details. So even like the, the details of the roof being crumbling, but tough and cheerful, even, and Sunny saying, she, she mentions her quadriceps and that she prefers that word to thighs, that all of these details are little clues to her voice, um, to her character, 
you know, to what she's wearing, um, you know, to, you know, the, the, the breeze as light as a die, just sort of, you know, she's got a poetic, um, voice, all of those things are really important. And, and I guess that it used to be longer, there was more in there and, but I just had to chop things out because there, like I've said, it became a bit too much of a circus, you know, where it was describing the city around her and I'm sort of like, I just leave that in that can, you can do that later. You don't have to do every detail at once. Um, but yeah, so I think the details are functioning, um, you know, to make someone believe that the writer and that the narrator knows what they're talking about so you can believe them. Um, but it's also setting up little flares to the reader um, just so that, you know, they're painting the picture as they read and you're filling in the details um, and, and filling in the colour, giving giving the book that sort of life. But, you know, not every writer's the same in that sense in that you've got some writers who just say put black on white and let the reader do the rest. But I want to see visions when I r- read and, uh, and so it only makes sense to write those sort of visions when I write. And, um, you know, and you'll have people sort of criticize something and say, oh, it's, a, it's overwrought or, you know, it's too much. And you sort of go, yeah, but I want to see those visions. So I'm happy to take those sort of criticisms um, to bring the writing to life in that way. I'm sorry, Sunny Dunbar on a roof. Marcus, I think you might have just made my year. Are we getting another Dunbar book? <laughs> Is this an exclusive <laughs> universe, listeners? I don't know if I can write it. <laughs> as I was saying earlier, I don't know if I'm capable of doing it. I wake up, but and I think you, you'll probably like this. I think it's really important. It's a pretty grand statement. I think you'll like this. Um, I'm sure I will. <laughs> is that I wake up in the morning, and I'm an early riser, and, and even today, I have all these different little, I guess, I don't want to say slogans, but uh, mottos, uh, which is, you know, sometimes, you know, commitment is the key to everything, you know, in writing. You know, you've got to commit. Well, it's pretty much the key to everything, I guess, in, in your life is, you know, to do it well, you have to commit. But then I've started telling myself, don't listen to your 6 a.m. self. Because <laughs> I wake up, you know, and I think about the book that I'm working on and all I think about is all oh, these problems and I'll sort of this and sort of that. Oh, it's really depressing. And don't listen to yourself until you're ready to actually write. At this point with this book, I'm not sure if I'm, you know, capable of writing it. But like I said earlier, that's kind of whether I like it or not, the position I like to put myself in. Not sure if I can do it. That might mean I have to do it. So... I think you have to now because you've read out that first page and it's bloody gold. <laughs> what do I do these things to myself? <laughs> oh, but thank you, Michelle. Um, it, but again, I think it's important to tell people that that beginning, you know, I've written that and rewritten that, you know, we're talking hundreds of times and, and you know, and that's how your beginning kind of should be. It, it, it's one of those things where, okay, it can go really easily like the beginning of the messenger or it can take a little bit more. And, um, and in that case, it's pretty worked on that first chapter and, uh, where you've got this girl, Sunny sitting on the roof and, you know, even the line where she says, and I'm here, a girl on the roof, it used to be 
and I'm here alone on the roof. And I went into all these other details that sort of showed that she was a girl because the name Sunny could be a girl or a boy. So you're always, you're always adjusting. And so with a first page like that, I mean, you know, no pressure, but it, it is important to get that right, isn't it? And apart from the language and getting the details right, are you trying to establish that character's voice from the get-go? Yes. And it was really important to me, like in this case, I, you know, and I want this to be a shorter book and I, and I wanted a character saying, come with me again. Okay. Yeah. You. you know, I wanted to come with me sort of voice. And so, and that's why, you know, all those little decisions, you know, like as I look down at it, where, you know, even just that little thing of, as for me, I'm Sunny Dunbar, nice to meet you. And I'm here, a girl on the roof. She's, she's inviting the reader. She's saying, uh, not necessarily, I want you to like me, but she's talking directly to her. And at the very end of that little prologue, she's saying, come on, climb up beside me. Um, you know, I'm asking you to come up, sit next to me and I'll tell you this story. And she says, you know, I'll tell it like this between us. You know, my hand is on your shoulder. I really like talking to the reader as if we're friends and and I did, and I started out, you know, the kitchen is my favorite room of any house. And, um, I like to feel like it's in some manner that the, the narrator and the reader are sitting in the kitchen together and one is telling the story to the other. Um, and so in this case here, yeah, all of those little decisions are me trying to establish the, but establish the voice, but also it's putting up a signpost about what the reader can expect from the book. And you want to set those expectations and then, you know, you want to meet them, um, you know, so that they are getting what you promised them. Um, so I think in this case, you know, it's like the first, like, yeah, the gunman is useless. What is that promising the reader? It's promising maybe, you know, ramshackle comedic journey uh, and, you know, whereas that first line from Bridge of Clay is promising something of depth and a big sprawling narrative that, you know, is asking you to give yourself over to it, you know. And I think, you know, this one with the girl with a racehorse on the lawn, front lawn, is, is saying, yeah, you can expect the unexpected here, um, but there's going to be some real heart as well. And I'm lovingly going to take you through this and, and we're going to be best friends by the end of this pool. Thank you. That's beautiful. Um, now, our mutual friend, Pamela Cook, um, and I think you've known Pam for a really long time. Yeah. Teach together back in Yeah. Well, actually, like, she taught at the high school I went to. As a, oh, wow. Didn't. Yeah. I never had her as a teacher, unfortunately, but um, yeah, she was always a, such a generous presence, at, you know, in that work and school environment. And uh, as she is always. So yeah, she's amazing. She's a writer, everybody, and also has an amazing podcast as well called Rights for Women. So you should all go and listen to that. Um, now, she said she would love to hear more about your notebooks and how you use them to process your ideas. And we've got a screenshot for you there, Pabs. You'll see a little bit of that. Um, she also says there's so much heart in Bridget Clay and so much emotion in the subtext. How do you do that? Um, yeah. How do I do anything? Is at the heart of that question as well. There's so much trial and error. And the, the, the best example I can use in Bridget Clay is 
there was there was one scene between Matthew and Clay on the front porch, and it's when Clay is going to leave the family to go and work on the bridge with their dad, and this was seen as a betrayal by Matthew. And nothing much is said on that front porch. Very little is said. And it was really interesting that uh, most of, well, all of my editors are uh, women. And, you know, and, and I've written this thing and, and they all, every one of them down to, yeah, they all said, we have absolutely no idea what is going on here <laughs> between these brothers. And I said, don't you get it? He's promising to really kick his ass if he ever decides to come back. <laughs> and so I had to make it a little bit more, uh, you know, readable in that way because there's this whole idea of the boys don't talk to each other. It's all sort of like it's one little elbow or it's a, oh yeah, or it's a, it, it, and everyone knows what the transaction was. And, um, but to get that, to get the heart across, there were, especially in Bridge of Clay when it was a family full of boys, the challenge was to get them all to say as little as possible. So I used letters a lot in Bridge of Clay where there'd be letters, uh, for example, between Clay and Carrie, but there, there was a really telling one where Clay writes a letter to the brothers and then they write one back to him. And Rory, who's the really rough and tough brother, says... Um, something along the lines of to, to Clay, because they've, they've joked about it before, said something before is, you've got heart, because Rory says to him, you've got heart to leave. And, uh, and when he writes it in the letter, he spells heart, H-A-R-T, and, and then he writes, huh, yeah, you thought I couldn't spell heart. <laughs> so I think it's bringing out the relationships and the emotion. It's when you have the characters speaking their secret language to each other. Oh, that's a good you, way to put it. And you're letting the reader see it. And that's, and that's where it comes. And even it's, it's done a lot between Clay and Carrie as well, where they, cause they don't talk that much to each other either. It's all in what they call, you know, what Clay or Matthew narrates as Carrie's little moves and just the way she do a certain thing and that signifies to Clay. And, and so that's their secret language and, um, you know, and all the, their little symbols and things like, you know, carrying a peg or she gives him a lighter and uh, it's one of those Zippo lighters. And, um, she says to him, you know, the bridge will be made of you. It'll be made of wood and stone. It'll be made of clay. And they know, you know what they say about clay and that runs through the whole book um the classic one well and when i say classic i just mean like the best example um of, of this is again i sort of go back to to the book thief is when the incident where rudy decides to become jesse owens <clears throat> jesse owens runs through the whole book it is planted and so what it is you're planting your seeds all the way through the book and you're planting them early and you're planting them in the middle and then you water them through the whole book. And then if you, you're, and you're doing it just to remind the reader that it's there. And so all the way through the book thief, you've got this reference to Rudy 
becoming Jesse Owens and running the hundred meters. And then when he dies at the end, and really it's a, it's a, you know, there's 2005 and six that book came out. So let's not worry about spoilers. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, is that when Liesl finds him at the end and he's, and he's dead and, and she's never kissed him and she, and she, she holds him and she, she says, wake up, Jesse Owens, wake up. Yeah. That is sort of like, it was this little secret language between them through the whole book. And then it, it, it comes down on the reader and hits the reader in its full force, you know, um, or the whole tree comes down and, um, you know, and, and similar to that is, um, you know, in Bridge of Clay, there's that she gives him the lighter and it's this little joke between them. And then when he, he burns the mattress that they used to lie on out the back in the surrounds, he used the lighter that she gave him. And, and so, you know, in a, in a smaller way than the example of the book thief in a more subtle way, it's, it's the, it's the coming together of that, that story, their story their private story, um, and their secret language, um, coming together. So maybe that's the answer to Pam's question, which was the hard one. Another writer, um, who listens to the podcast, Terry Green, asks the question, how do you get through writer's block? Is that yeah. a thing for you? It, I think writer's block is many things and, uh, and let's just be, let's have some fun and use the word manifests, you know, and manifests itself in many ways. Um, for me, it's more, I don't have trouble writing anything, but I, I have trouble feeling like I want to write and I have trouble believing what I've written. So I, I sort of believe more in writer's lack of faith. Um, you know, that you've written something and of course it's not good. How many times do you write something good the first time? It's not that often. Um, and talking of a secret language, it's sort of like every book, every new book is its own like new language. It's a bit like you wouldn't expect to pick up, uh, to start learning, let's say, or Brazilian Portuguese. You wouldn't sit there and go, right, I'm going to start and expect to be really good at it to begin with. So when you, so I think what, what I try to think of is that writing a new novel is like learning a new language. You're learning that new secret language and, um, it takes time to come to terms with it. And so. Of course, you're going to have times where you're blocked with it and you can't get it to work. And so, um, I guess that's my best answer for Terry. I think it does hit us all. And, uh, I mean, it took me 13 years to write Bridge of Clay, but at the end, I think what you become grateful for is I've had like really long fallow periods, like really long ones. So my first manuscripts that I ever wrote. The first, I really struggled to write my first one and I'm 17 years old. I've just finished my HSC and those three months, you know, before university, I was, I was working part-time as a cleaner and doing other stuff. So I wasn't just sitting around trying to write, but those three months gone, couldn't do it. I thought, you know, I was still learning the, the language. And then, but that year I, I did manage to finish my first manuscript and then I wrote another one really quickly. But then between that, neither of them got published, thank God. But between that and the next manuscript that I finished was three years, I couldn't write anything. And what I realized is because I was still finding my own voice and I was still trying to find 
you know, who I was as a writer. And I think we're trying to do that all the time. And I think that's where writer's block comes from is because you don't want to be like anybody else. You want to be truly like yourself. And those periods are there for you to find that voice because it's not easy. It's not easy to write a book that no one else has ever written before. Um, and so I think you've got to, we have to expect that that is part of the territory, you know, and if you think of your writing life as this big map, you've got these, you know, terrible dark caves and forests on there that you've kind of got to get through, but there is light on the other side of that. Yeah. And do you believe in sitting down and just doing the work? I do, but I also believe in letting it go sometimes okay. because you're just not ready. Um, you know, the, sometimes you can try too hard okay. and, and yeah, and sometimes you have to, but it, it's, I guess it's the wise person and the wise writer and we can't be that all the time to know which is which, when you should just sort of go, I'm having a day off and watching The Big Lebowski. You know, or I'm going to go for a walk or a run or a surf, or I'm going to go to the movies, or I'm going to, you know, do whatever it is, you know, um, walk the dog and things like that. So I think sometimes you got to know when you're, you're just feeling a bit stale and come to it the next day. Um, you know, and I've had days, like, I'm, I often have days like that. But what I, I think, it just depends. What gives you energy? Go and find that. You know, because I was just about to sort of downplay social media and the, but mate, if that's what gives you energy, it might be just the, the trick you need. So, um, so I feel like, um, yeah, sometimes, yes, you've got to force your way to and break through the wall. And sometimes that's not as hard as you think it's going to be. You know, sometimes it's just sitting down at your desk and then you're there, you go, oh, I'm here there. Um, and I'm, I'm actually happy. Writing is making me happy. This is unusual, unusual. <laughs> so. Charlotte Wood talks in her um, new book on writing, The Luminous Solution, about leaving all the fear and self-doubt at the door of the circus tent. And then when you go into the tent, coming at the desk with a sense of curiosity rather than fear, sort of saying, and what can I, can I get excited about? Yeah, and I think... I mean, every day is sort of different too, and I totally believe in that. And so, so and sometimes, you know, depending, you, you have to get your motivation and your belief from somewhere every time, but you don't always have to get it from the same place. And so sometimes you are suiting up for war when you sit down. And, um, and, and sometimes you are going in just going, okay, let's leave that behind and just have fun today because... You're trying to make it work however it's going to work. Uh, and uh, as a friend of mine once said, you know, I was talking about you know, the rule of, oh, show, don't tell. And he said, oh, don't worry about show, don't tell. It's whatever you can get away with. I love that. And whatever, you, whatever you're prepared to push back to the editors on, I guess, as well. Oh, yeah. And, um, and I'm keeping that comma. <laughs> yeah. And that's all for, and that's, and my, feeling is too. I mean, if you're really good at collaborating, then you bring your editor in earlier or people who read your books like earlier. I mean, I'm not collaborative at all. And you can probably tell by my sense of the unromance and unromanticness of punctuation, whereas I'm looking at it, I'm, I would just sort of want to control everything so that that's perfect before I send it to an editor so I can argue for everything. Um, or I can let things go more easily because 
Because if everything else feels pretty tight and they go, yeah, we, what about this? You go, yeah, I can let go of that. I can let go of that. And then it becomes easier to say, which was my, there was the one, the one really funny moment editing Bridge of Clay in the sort of track challenge thing on the side of the, of the edit was quite early on where I just said, if I could just make, I'm just make myself clear on this one that I hope I'm not out of line is that, that I just said, I would rather cut off one of my fingers than take that line out of the book. <laughs> and, and the editor, I had a really good relationship with she right? Yep. Right. I uh, understood. Uh, yeah, we think you think you should keep that one without your fingers. You very good to them, Marcus. <laughs> that's that's very true. Uh, so it's so, but I think it is. It's it's a constant. It's a constant Kandinsky dilemma of chaos control, chaos control, and, and uh, you're trying to enjoy the chaos and not get too bogged down in the control and. Uh, and just always working in that way. And, and, and when you really think of it that way, it's a good life and, it, and it's, a, it's a lucky life and, and, a, and a beautiful life to live. I did notice that Terry did also ask about the idea of imposter syndrome. She did. Which is not. Uh, and, I'm so, and I have to thank you, Terry, because I didn't know. And such a great term, imposter syndrome. And I looked it up, although being a writer, I sort of understood what, where she was coming from. But then having looked it up, but just that idea of that, no, I'm not good enough to be a writer. Like what makes me think that I can be a writer? And, uh, and so my answer to, to her on that one is every day I feel that when I write, but what, what makes me think that I'm any good? Cause you look at all these books out there and they look professional and they look like someone who knew what they were doing, wrote them. Trust me. Those people did not know what they were doing <laughs> and they didn't know what they were doing 100% of the time. Actually, there was only one point in which they knew what they were doing. And you know, that was when it was already too late and the book was on its way to the printer. That's when we all know what we're doing. And, uh, and so I remind myself every day that it only has to be good once. It only has to be perfect and right once. And that's when it's going to the printer to be published. Not even your own printer when you're printing it out. Okay. It only has to be good then. And everything up to then, it's all up for grabs. And, uh, and so you're going to have all these highs and lows where you're feeling good when you're feeling bad. Um, but if everyone else is doing it, why can't you as well? So I think just remind yourself that it only has to be good once. And, uh, and we all feel that way because. Like I said, we're all writing a new language when we write these things. And, uh, and if it was easy, everybody would do it. Yeah. I love what you say about learning a new language with every book. I really feel like that's true. I've never heard it put that way before, but that makes a lot of sense. It's quite meaningful to me. Yeah, I, well, yeah I'm, I'm glad. Thank you. It's sort of like there are some artist sort of friends that, I know a friend of mine where she said, oh, there was one point where all I wanted to do was draw squares. And her teacher said to her, well, draw them. <laughs> draw them until you're ready to not draw them anymore. And there is, there's the writer who may be writing the same book over and over and over again to, to, get, to finally get it right. But then there's the other writer who goes, okay, I'm done with that. Now I've got to try something 
totally new. Um, but each one is building on the foundation blocks of the previous one. And, uh, and I think even if you are writing something similar to your last one, we think it's similar, but we're trying to do things differently as well, um, no matter what, because I think there is that tendency as a writer to want to imagine and, and always to grow from the last one. As a friend of mine once said to me, you don't always have to write a better book than the last one. You just have to write a different one. And I believe that. But you're always trying to write a different one. That's also better. And that's not so meaningful to you. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes you where you need to go. And, and you, all you can hope for is that there will be some readers who want to go with you. I just had one little other quick question that just occurred to me. I know you've been asked a million times about death narrating the book thief and everyone can go and listen to any number of podcasts and interviews here to hear your answer on that. But in Bridge of Cayenne, I only noticed this the second time around, death hangs around. <laughs> death, hangs, death hangs from the light posts outside the Dunbar house. And yeah, and he's, he's on the curtain rod. yeah. And that, uh, and to a point where, and this is a, where you're building, um, you're just building on an image. Yeah. Was that there, called chips? Build it again. And I put it in, it was, that was a little sort of. Nod. Yeah. A little joke to people who'd read the book feed. Right. Is that, and that was a little bit for them, but it suited, but it had to suit the book too. Oh, and it did. That death was coming for Penny to a point where they're sort of like, they're almost trying to, it's like a hurricane in the end coming at the house and they're trying to keep the doors away. But of course he always finds a way in. And, um, oh, nicely done. Lovely touch. Oh, and it's, and this is the great thing about reading books a second time. And, uh, and it actually bridge of clay probably is better the second time. Um, it is what a lot of people told me, but not many people read a book a second time. But it's like for me, I mean, and not to compare the novels or their status in, in any way, but um, I think like a book like The Catcher in the Rye gets better and better the older you get as you read it. And, uh, and you know, as a teenager, when you read it, you just want to strangle Caulfield, um, Rob Holden, and uh, you sort of just, oh, he's such a liar and you're such this and that. And, and because like, all most teenagers hate him, and then but as you get older, you realise he just needs a hug, and you realise that he's he's getting over the trauma of his younger brother dying, and uh, and all and not and feeling like it was the wrong brother who died, but should have been him, and so on. And so, yeah, it's interesting when you re- reread books, and 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 that comes back a little bit to even John Irving and um, talking about writing. He says, "I'm not a good writer." I'm a good rewriter. And, uh, and he says that that's, that's how I do it. And, uh, and I think, you know, there's, there's a good lesson in, in that one as well. Good to reread and rewrite. Read and reread and definitely reread both Bridget Clay and The Messenger. So thank you for writing them. And I'm going to let you go and get stuck back into that new book, Marcus. I feel like I'm taking you away from <laughs> the next Dunbar book and I don't want to be doing that. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. Now, you know what I'll do is I'm supposed to do that, but you know, being male and everything, and a writer, I'll just procrastinate for a while to do something else for a few hours. Any writers out there, don't feel guilty about not writing. Trust me, I'm an expert at it. Marcus, thank you so much for today. I've 
so enjoy them. So much gold in there and you've just been so generous and delightful. Thank you. Oh, Michelle, anytime. And uh, thanks for such great questions and uh, it's good to see you and, uh, and I can't wait to catch up again soon. Yeah, can't wait. Thank you. Well, how good was that? And how good is it that we might be getting another novel about the Dunbar family? Very, very exciting. And all the more reason if you haven't yet read Bridge of Clay to pick up a copy and get stuck into it this summer. It really is such a beautiful, sweeping gem of a novel. Just let yourself fall into the language and you'll be swept away by the story. I guarantee it. If you want to listen to more from Marcus, there are a couple of other podcasts I'm going to recommend. The Good Life podcast with Andrew Lee, where he talks a bit more about his life as a writer and as a reader and goes into the themes of his novels in a little bit more depth. Also, the Storyfest podcast, Series 2, Episode 1, where Marcus gave the opening night address on the books that changed him, both as a person and as a writer. It was so good. I hadn't actually heard anything like it before. Marcus physically brought all the books along with him on the night in a cardboard box and later as he sauntered off to the signing table with the box of books on his shoulder we joked that it was an old school Kindle. So have a listen to those two interviews if you want to hear more from Marcus. You can find Marcus on his website bridgeofclay.com and you'll also find him on Facebook and Instagram. The show notes from today's episode are on writersbookclubpodcast.com, where you'll also find links to buy Marcus's books. Right, on to 2022. And for the first time, we're going to be taking a deep dive into memoir. I'm delighted to be speaking with author, podcaster and writing teacher Ashley Collegian Blunt about her memoir, How to Be Australian. How to Be Australian is full of sharp observations and self-deprecating humour. It's the story of Ashley and her husband, Steve, who leave snowy Canada for a year down under and find themselves in all sorts of emotional strife. They need to find an Australia they can connect with and belong. This memoir shines a fresh, funny and fascinating light onto the country we think we know now. Australian author Catherine Collette, who some of you will know from the First Time podcast, said it was unputdownable and if you like Bill Bryson, you will love Ashley Collegian Blunt. Well, Catherine, I do love Bill Bryson, and now I also love Ashley, so excellent call there. As always, I'm giving away a copy of this month's book, so head over to Writers Book Club Instagram and Facebook accounts to enter that and win a copy of How to Be Australian. Entries will close on December the 7th. Thank you, everyone, for joining me this month and this year. I honestly couldn't have done it without you, my fabulous, loyal listeners. And thank you for sending in your questions over the year, entering the book giveaways, leaving your gorgeous reviews on Apple Podcasts. They have absolutely made my year. Have a wonderful, safe Christmas with your friends and family, and I will see you in the new year with a brand new series of deep dive interviews with your favourite authors. As always, I'm recording this episode today on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation. Merry Christmas and see you next year. Mm-hmm.